welcome back to SNR Podcasts. We're at it again. I'm ready to talk about some interesting things. I'm nodding on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> if, if it helps, I can see him nodding. Um, doesn't. <laughs> of course it doesn't. <laughs> so today I actually wanted to tell a really cool story, oh, which see. I found really interesting. And in actual fact, I started um, telling you about it. But I had to go and do some research and actually figure out, you know, this whole story because it was very intriguing. Mm-hmm. So let me let me set the scene a bit. So it's late 1980s in a town called Rome in Maine in the oh, States. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a little confusing because initially I was like, wait, what? Rome's a city. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, essentially it's a, it's a holiday town. There's a lot of um, lakes around, which are all named ponds because I suppose a lake is much bigger in the States. But I mean, it, our equivalent of a lake is their pond. <laughs> so they call a pond what, like... Some huge body of water is called like yes. Sylvie's Pond or so something. So you had like North Pond oh, and right. you had like South Pond. North Pond. And it only takes an hour to get across. <laughs> and there, there are big bodies of water. I mean, if you if you look it up on Google Maps, you can actually go check out the area. Real and there's thick lake boys. a whole lot of big old lake boys. Yeah. Um, but it looks like a nice area. I saw just looking at Google Maps that um, there's some like hiking spots around. Um, nice little um town yeah and um essentially it was as i say a holiday town people went there to relax to you know go to their holiday houses um to get away from the city and that sort of thing and it was known for being extremely safe because i mean 1980s in the states not a whole lot of crime in this town just a lot of cocaine (laughs) well let's hope not but anyway (laughs) We're, we're talking like family friendly here. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so family friendly holiday destination. Yes. So essentially what started happening is like around late 1980s, they suddenly there's some like petty crimes going on and you know, the the batteries from people's torches would Why go is missing. So sounding familiar? Because I I told you at the beginning of the story. Oh, no. <laughs> no, but even so But um and then like tinned beans would go missing or Mm. or like the candy from the kids like bedside tables would go missing and and it was like very very petty crimes like it it was never anything big and almost like victimless crimes to degree exactly and i mean nothing was ever stolen that was like of um substantial value great consumable value exactly and these were houses that were owned by pretty wealthy people yeah um, Sounds like a Robin Hood thing. Yeah. So essentially this was happening. And at the same time, the most noticeable one was there's, there was a camp that I believe it was like a special ed camp, um, which was the reason they were quite um, upset by the crimes. Special ed meaning? Um, like, what, special, like special needs, like special needs oh, children. Okay. Um, so it was like an outdoorsy camp thing in the States. And a lot of food was going missing from there. And I think I think they were just like, oh, you know, who could who could do this? Hmm. You know, stealing food from kids, basically. Yeah. Um, 
And for years this went on. And I mean, when I say years, I mean, I mean about 27 years this went on. That no one was caught. No one was ever like found to be guilty of it. And obviously as the technology evolved, then, you know, cameras were installed and alarms were installed and, and never were they able to sort of catch who it was. They'd catch glimpses of a person so that they figured out that it was the same person, but they just didn't know who was causing these crimes and they couldn't put a face to it they couldn't put a name to it um they interviewed suspects in these cases and because it was actually unsettling the people who were on holiday there because as you can imagine you come home the one day and like someone's been in your house exactly and the batteries are gone from your remote like how do you feel about that that's that's it's a, such a small crime, but it feels but almost... But clearly someone's been in your space. Exactly. It, it feels targeted and yeah. personal. Yeah, and so, they can easily get into your house. Yeah. They know when you're gone. So I think that was the most unsettling part, is that <clears throat> people really couldn't handle the fact that someone was coming into their space, yeah. their personal space, their holiday space that was supposed to be safe mm-hmm. and was taking things. Because, I mean... They were like, okay, what if it escalates? You know, what what if this is just the beginning of a trend? You know, yeah. and a twenty-seven um, year trend. A twenty-seven year trend. So anyway, they eventually called this guy the North Pond Hermit, as I say, the ponds in the yeah. area, because they figured he was sort of striking around where striking. I say striking. I mean, like he was stealing from houses in the area around where he was obviously living and because they had no record of him and they couldn't identify him among the local holidayers they figured he must be you know some kind of hermit some kind of you know person who stays by himself and especially the stuff he was stealing was essentials it Mm. was livable items essentially and the way in which they caught him was this very um determined i think is the right word to use um cop who just had to catch him he Mm. was like it it, this has been going on too long 27 years this has been going on we know he always he regularly strikes this um this special needs camp so we're going to essentially stake out this campsite especially around the kitchen area and find this guy like for real arrest him end of story and um eventually they did end up catching him so this was in 2013 they ended up arresting a guy Mm -hmm. and i think people were so taken aback by the person they were arresting because they built this character of this like north pond hermits and i mean immediately when you think hermits it's like this you know dirty gross old man exactly and i mean this guy was like well-spoken clean kleptomaniac um obviously a yeah. bit of a kleptomaniac but um sounds like his that story from the Tintin movie. yeah <laughs> with all the wallets, wallets yeah. yeah um but his story i think is it's fascinating so i'm going to backtrack a bit before i'd say what happened after he got arrested and that sort of thing but he went into isolation hiding whatever you want to call it when he was 20 years old mm-hmm. so he decided i've had enough he packed up his bags and he basically went driving around the states um not really knowing what he wanted to do and eventually ended up driving into the wilderness in maine in 1986 
So the last thing this guy remembers was Chernobyl <laughs> before he went into hiding, yeah. essentially. So basically he had no sense of time after that. Um, and when they arrested him, he was he had no identity, he had no um, record of who he was. And he didn't know what year it was either. So they kept asking him, like, what's the last thing you remember? And he was like, oh, you know, Reagan was president and Chernobyl. <laughs> that was the last thing this guy remembered, which is insane. Imagine in 2013 meeting a person who's like, oh, yeah, you know, the last visible news was Chernobyl. So self-admitted that he can't remember it. Well, self-admitted that he, he just never followed what happened after that. Oh, so it's not the case that he... Just snapped one day and now he's got amnesia. No, 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 or no. Or like, no. Yeah. So, so this guy came from a very um, sort of strict background. He had a very religious family and um, they sort of had very restricted rules. But the one thing they were allowed to do was read. So he was extremely well read, very bright guy. Um, but he just had enough of society. He had enough at that stage and decided... I'm I'm off. I'm going to go live in the woods. And in 27 years, the only words he'd spoken was hello to someone who happened to go deep enough into the woods to find where he was sort of staying. Um, and some fascinating things I found about sort of the way he was living is it wasn't in any way um, sort of like a tiny little tent in the woods. He had a full-blown like set up that he obviously yeah, yeah that he'd set up over the years and he had like um this huge tarpaulin and um bedding oh, yeah. and very established yeah home. extremely established home and, and neat and tidy and very like well kept and um yeah he often used to steal books so he had a ton of books that he'd been reading over the years um but surely he would have known about the world through the books to a degree. but it was all fiction all of it he only he, stole fiction yeah so How he, did he, he didn't fiction? want to know about anything really because it was mostly children's books he ended up stealing or like um like love love novels or romance novels yeah um because it's, holi it's holiday reading I don't know. Well, he was 20 when he went. Um, he was reading the blurbs as he's casing the joint. <laughs> I mean, probably. Of Apparently, course. he spent a substantial amount of time in some of these homes, yeah. you know, just sort of seeing but what he needed. holiday homes, he was probably in there quite a long time. Yeah. While they so, um, yeah, he... And then basically, because Maine gets extremely cold, their biggest question was, how did you survive the winters? Mm. And this part I found really interesting because it's it's... It's smart survival skills, in actual fact, for, for a guy who is living off of stolen goods. <laughs> um, he used to have a, 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 like an alarm clock that he'd obviously probably stolen from somewhere. And um, he used to sleep early in the evening and then wake up, I think he said around 2 a.m. when it was coldest. And he would pace around his tent to mm. keep the blood moving. And essentially, he wouldn't feel the cold because his muscles were moving. Mm. And that's how he made it through the winters, is he would make sure he was moving, you know, during yeah, the coldest times. Yeah. And people became, like, enthralled by his story. Because as you can imagine, this, this man willingly went into this, like, hermetic lifestyle mm. um, in order to just get away from it all. 
and they thought he was like a wise old sage or he'd have like a lot of wisdom and that sort of thing and exactly i mean he he basically said like he he wasn't necessarily running from anything or yeah. getting away from anything he just that's the lifestyle he decided to yeah. live you know and he said he thinks that people sort of built this idea of what character he should be but he did it for himself it wasn't any sort of like prophetic you know mission no or philosophical journey no um well even a personal one i mean he said he was never really he was never bored he just was very at peace with himself and where he was you yeah. know he read his books ate his candy that was about it mm. um but i do think the most amusing thing out of all of this was you know people were like oh well, you know what what can we learn from this guy like what he can, what can he tell us and the only thing he could sort of come up with to say is to get enough sleep <laughs> wow so after this like 27 years of isolation all he could sort of like sum it up to was get enough sleep hmm. which is pretty profound in itself i suppose but it, it just shows you i think i think we look for a lot of meaning in in these sorts of things but sometimes it can just be just a choice just to run off into the wilderness you know and hmm. i mean he wasn't exactly a wild man <laughs> he did sort of live off yeah of, he was still civilized I suppose. yeah so he actually did get charged with all the petty theft obviously oh, yeah. yeah um and he was in prison for a while which he said was like the worst thing he's ever experienced as i can imagine because imagine being well, he had complete freedom and autonomy exactly and i, th I think people are enthralled by this freedom mm. to be honest with you more than anything else more than the man himself it's it's the freedom they were like what was it like you know what was it like to be yeah, it so was, it was freedom hinged yeah it was freedom where he, like he he kind of uh, took the freedoms kind of selectively yeah it was like yeah i'll live out in the woods but uh don't expect me to live off the land. Exactly. <laughs> live off of other people. So I mean, he did or fish. Steal from other people. He did fish and that sort of thing in the in the summer months, but obviously in the winter, yeah, he had to sort of rely. Yeah, and I suppose on it was like petty enough, but yeah, the food and stuff it can add up. Exactly. I mean, especially with exactly. a special needs camp, you're probably e working on donations. <laughs> exactly. And now, yeah, there's a hermit stealing all your stuff just because so, he wants to go and live out in the woods yeah and i i think i think the reason i i, I keep thinking about the story i heard it about about it a couple of weeks ago where'd you hear it um i actually heard it on another podcast I that i was listening to but then i read about it there's actually a book um about it mm -hmm. and there's a national geographic article about it there's yeah. a whole lot of articles about it but um I mean, as recently as like 2017, people were writing about it um, purely out of Wasn't he like interest in of 20, all of this. By 2013. 2013, yeah. So, I I just I th it really stuck with me, and I think I think it's more just because just because of the whole situation and how people actually reacted to him afterwards. I was I was surprised, you know. It people wanted to be that like movie kind of scenario where he mm. comes out and he's like full of these this prophetic wisdom you know that's almost like into the wild a little yes bit. it is a bit like Except into the wild. Has a, a lot worse of an ending i think i think into the, the difference is is that into the wild he actually his 
he did his have was a prophetic a, ph- a philosophical journey. Yeah, it was yeah. a deeply personal journey. Exactly, a philosophical and prophetic. But <laughs> yeah, philosophical ending in that he was like, you actually do need people to experience. Yeah, happiness, happiness. only real when shared. Yeah, and and I mean that is that is pretty beautiful. Whereas this guy was kind of just like, uh, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> make sure you sleep enough, eight yeah. hours a night. Um, Jesus. But yeah, just a different person. And they actually sort of have labeled him as the last true hermit because he was the only, he was the last person that's like been truly isolated and hasn't even spoken to someone in 27 years. Well, I and think you, the, the rest of them still need to be found. Yeah, probably. probably there's probably, still <laughs> there's probably some also, by the South Pond, by the East Pond. No, I, I think it's more that this guy wasn't found for 27 years. Yeah. Most hermits probably are never found. If we're that's honest. that's true. Um, but even so, it's. But it'd be interesting to see. But yeah. And then to to cap off the story, I actually I still went and looked. So where do you think he is today? What do you think he's doing? So he's obviously been released from prison. I don't know. Uh, Give it a guess. He's now a counselor for special needs camp. <laughs> okay, that would be a true one eight, like one eighty. But um, he's actually working at like an automotive, sort of as a mechanic. Yeah. So he's he's out to disappoint everyone who hears about him. <laughs> Pretty much. Jeez. It's it's such a, it's such a mundane story, but it's so interesting. Yeah. That like people became so interested in his life, and I mean I'm one of them. I was so enthralled by the story. I was like, "What? This this guy is crazy! I can't believe he he went and did this." And you know, nice. He's a mechanic, <laughs> but interesting nonetheless. Very yeah. interesting. Wow. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. Yeah. Do you want your tea? Yes, please. <laughs> <sighs> I set up is a lot better than last time. Much more comfortable. Last time we were under a table, trying to get the best sound possible mm-hmm. by putting a blanket over the table. But now we have a nice little patch in the middle of our lounge mm. uh, with a heater on, mm. a potential fire hazard to be sure, um, <laughs> and a, a looped eight-hour video of a fireplace on YouTube. And there's a cat that like sleepily opens its eyes and closes its eyes again. Yeah, it's a cat on a green screen. It looks like. It yeah. It looks like what did I say? <laughs> the it looks like the, the DVD, loading screen. It looks like a DVD menu screen. A menu That's screen. That's what it looks yeah. like. I still can't get over that Vox um, episode on what was it? Sugar. Sugar, yeah. And Kerry Russell married him. Yeah. I, I I still can't decide whether or not she was reading my obituary there, or <laughs> trying to seduce me. <laughs> with how she sounded you listen to her voice in that episode and tell me you agree because my gosh it's that vox explained on netflix well it's on youtube as well oh, probably and, just netflix yeah. um but yeah that voiceover was something else <laughs> it sounds so sullen but like weirdly sultry too <laughs> and it was about sugar of all things yeah oh my gosh <laughs> um as far as things i want to chat about um, I listened to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, that podcast, um, and Sean Penn was on one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sean Penn is a very renowned actor, um, been in all sorts of flipping movies. Um, I'm going to name none of them, but <laughs> uh, 
I his most notable ro- role to me is in uh, Secret Life of Walter Mitty, mm. where he plays the photographer in there, and um, yeah, he plays a very cool character in there, if not a very brief one. Mm. Uh, but uh, this interview was very interesting in that he seems like a super super down to earth, humble dude. Like it, I had like this image built up of him as some sort of reprobate, some sort of like callous just villainous Hollywood person. Um, I don't know why. Yeah, maybe because of like yeah. the roles he plays and maybe his demeanor. Like mm. he, he looks like quite a um, an aggressive dude maybe. But in the, the interview, he comes across very well-spoken, very knowledgeable, very contextually aware. Mm. And he started talking about um, kind of his comfort zone and how he finds like acting and all this stuff and he said something really interesting in that he said his attitude towards acting is almost like when you sing in a car by yourself Mm. that sense of like security yet vulnerability Mm. in that like it's just you in the car uh, your song's on and now you're going to start singing Mm. it you don't care how you sound you don't care what you look like because other people aren't going to be looking at you they'll look at the road yeah and he said, yeah, you, I act like if I had to be singing in a car um, by myself. And I thought that was super interesting. That, that is very nice. Like, it's a nice analogy. I think it, it must be a nice feeling as well mm, to get to that stage. Because yeah. I, I know I cannot sing. But do I sing in the car? Yes, everyone does. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I know that's that sense that you're, you're talking about, that sort of comfort mm. in it. Yeah. It was interesting because essentially something that seems so uncomfortable, uh, in essence, you have to be comfortable with it. I mean, that's uh, even doing drama and stuff in school. Yeah. uh, You find a huge imbalance with being comfortable on a stage. It's the least comfortable place ever. In actual fact, I said to you the other day that um, I listening to that dialect coach. Yeah. I said to you, I couldn't do it because I I, I can't do accents ever. Um, It's my greatest weakness no i'm joking <laughs> but um you actually you actually mentioned that um drama and acting and stuff is immensely uncomfortable but you have to find comfort in it otherwise it comes across stiff well yeah it can come across as you just reading memorized lines memorized lines which yeah. is the biggest problem but it's as soon as you're comfortable with it then you can start adding stuff to mm. it but that's that could be true for virtually anything mm. um anything that can be hard uh, comfort in it will immediately make it easier yeah. or at least some sort of comfort with it but also another interesting thing um was that he was in that movie called milk and i've only ever seen or heard of that movie i've seen the cover mm. just says milk and i had no flipping clue what this thing was like from that that title you don't know what the hell this movie is but it's actually an autobiographical movie on a guy called Harvey Milk. And okay. he was a U.S. supervisor, I think they call him, mm. in San Francisco. And his kind of the whole reason the movie was done. And another thing he said in the podcast was that with current times with actors having to portray or not having to, but actors typically going the route of um, people who are in real life uh, exhibit aspects that the character has are typically cast mm. so like obviously black characters will be black, black actors mm. that's a given that's how it should be 
but he was saying like in Harvey Milk he played a gay man Harvey Milk's a real person mm. it's autobiographical but he said now would it be the case where uh, you'd have to have a gay actor play a gay man because um, James Franco's in that movie too mm. playing his boyfriend at yeah. one stage I never knew James Franco acted with Sean Penn ever yeah and there's a lot of really good actors in it. The guy who plays... I've actually never heard of this movie. <laughs> yeah. So the guy who plays the actor, the main detective of the DEA, or the DEA agent in mm. Narcos with the moustache. Yes. He's in there too. The main sure. character from Into the Wild is in there. Wow. There's also... Um, where is she from? She plays Kim in Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, the redhead. She's in there. Wow. Um, there's so many good actors in it. Josh Brolin's in it. It's bizarre wow. how many good actors are in it. The guy who plays, I think it's the, the designer of the Titanic, uh, in Titanic, the movie. He's mm. in there too. He plays a mayor. Sure. But essentially it's about this guy called Harvey Milk. And uh, he's a gay man who uh, kind of grows to renown in this little um, San Francisco suburb during the 70s. Mm. Yeah. Early 70s to late 70s. Um, so... Effectively, what happened was um, he opened up this camera shop on a street in San Francisco. And obviously, gay people weren't exactly accepted back then, uh, even in San Francisco. But probably in large part due to him, it's how they became more accepted. So he opened up this camera shop and it became kind of a haven for gay people in and around the area mm. to kind of come to and kind of get help with whatever they needed or places to meet people, stuff like that. But he started seeing that his street wasn't very kind to people of his kind, and he decided to run for a supervisor position. Mm -hmm. So to be elected into a position of power where he could start to make change. But he was for all sorts of people who are underrepresented, so elderly, mm -hmm. um, uh, at-risk youth, stuff like that, black people too. And he became quite successful. He went through it, I think it was like four or five years, Mm. where he lost election after election. But then every year they were seeing he was gaining more and more votes every time he lost. Till eventually he ran again and he won it. Mm -hmm. So he was elected to this office and like he he did he did a lot of good things with it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were all sorts of uh, laws going around at the time that tried to prohibit gay people being teachers in schools. Um mm -hmm trying to say that it's like it's just as bad as having a pedophile there or there's higher rates of pedophilia in, uh, in gay people. So get them out of the schools. And he organized huge efforts to try and stop this from happening, had debates with the guy behind the bull mm. who was a very, very religious guy. And they came out on top eventually. It's, it sure. didn't pass. But he did a lot for um, like the whole gay movement essentially. And was a really, really well-liked guy. Seemed like a very, very nice guy. Mm. Someone who was really, really easy to get along with. Just a, a happy person. Mm. A precocious person. Kind of a provocative person as well. Yeah. Um, but a really, really nice guy. And Josh Brolin's character in the movie plays an ex-cop who's also a supervisor. Yeah. But isn't very well-liked. Um, and they kind of like butt heads and then... The whole thing is that you have to like form alliances so that people can help you vote on bills and that they can help you pass things that they need to be passed mm. or things that they'd really like to be passed. And um, essentially, like there's some anonymity between them and 
uh, Josh Brolin's character. I can't remember his name. Not that, yeah, you'd want to remember his name. But uh, essentially, he becomes very um, diminished by Harvey Milk and his efforts. So this guy, being an ex-cop and all that, he's now fallen from grace, all due to a gay man. And uh, what happens in it is, what happened in real life is that this man, um, after uh, getting humiliated by a bill that he wouldn't sign on because Harvey didn't sign on one of his, or something like that. Yeah. He got humiliated because this bill passed and um, Harvey and the mayor signed it and signed it into, into law. And it was a huge effort towards um, making sure that gay people were given equal rights to everyone else yeah. and weren't discriminated against. So with that, what happened was this guy was so um, irate because of that. Yeah. He took it upon himself to walk into this. Um, uh, I don't know what the offices would be called, but he, he went into the offices um, after he'd been fired as mm. well, or asked to resign, whichever. Went into the mayor's office, shot the mayor, and then went to Harvey Milk's office and killed him. Oh, my word. Yeah. So this man, after doing all this stuff for gay rights movements, under de- deserving people in general. Yeah was snubbed by this guy who just was felt put out by this guy what yeah so he plays that character in the movie sean penn and like to see him in that role was so strange because yeah just not knowing that he's ever done a role like that but also just the actor himself it was super super well done it was a very good movie a very sad movie Actually, I, I checked now. I recognize the poster, weirdly. Yes. Like the cover. You would have the seen cover the poster. Arts, definitely. Yeah. The light um, and dark blue and then him standing in the middle. I'm actually and he looks, he looks very similar to, to Harvey Milk. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, a very, very uh, tragic story. But, honestly, probably most of the reason why San Francisco is kind of like a, a haven for gay people in a yeah. certain way where they can make communities. But it was, sure. it was very, very interesting. But sounds like yeah, a good movie, actually. Very cool, very very cool movie, but quite sad. I can imagine. But it actually happened. I can imagine. Yeah. I can't believe that uh, I I don't even recognize the name actually. Harvey Milk. Yeah. Yeah, you is, wouldn't. I mean, it's sad because uh, no, he, you won't hear about it in South Africa. Though. It's quite a quite a feat he achieved. You know, he he definitely was there when people needed him most. Yeah, but I mean, that's kind of a testament to the feat he was, kind of heroing yeah i mean it wasn't something people wanted to report on mm, that is true as well quite a downer <laughs> i can imagine <laughs> but it was a good movie it's a very very good movie but again to the very point cool. in the future will you have will you have it where actors can't play those characters That's a, i've Would never you, actually thought about that yeah it's kind of it's kind of a catch 20 not even a catch 22 but it's more that i mean you have a straight person acting as a gay person mm. is there merit in that i don't know maybe mm. i mean it's uh, does it like break down walls for a straight guy probably but like it probably makes them more comfortable with anything of it yeah anything around the point but you'd have to be a, a comfortable person to do it in the first place yeah. i suppose but, but i, I also well i wanted to ask you know acting is all about playing the character yes it doesn't mean you have to 
be no, no, no. the character. <laughs> no, like so. Yes. So you, so that person does that character doesn't necessarily have to have an actor that is exactly the same. Yeah, true. But um, the whole thing is that would would you find more merit in it uh, a gay person uh, playing Harvey Milk as opposed to a straight person playing a gay person? Yeah. Which was an interesting thought. I didn't think of it in that guise. You only really think of it as uh, if the character's written this race yeah. or this gender. Yeah. They're going to be that race or gender. Yes. Um, or at least they should be. Makes sense, yeah. But, yeah, when sexuality comes into it what, would it, what would it be? Like, does it open up more opportunities for for gay actors to do stuff? Mm. I don't know. Like, Brokeback Mountain, Heath Ledger, Jake Gyllenhaal, they're not gay men. Yeah. But played a gay couple, convincingly yeah. too. I mean, people really like the movie. Mm. But, yeah, an interesting, interesting take. Yeah, I didn't I've really think about, about it. it. Well, since since we're continuing the trope of interesting people and interesting movies, um, I often I love to read the um, New York Times. This is gonna sound awful, but the obituaries. Oh, <laughs> but um, they often write about people who've lived very interesting lives or who have contributed significantly in their lives so i suppose i actually would be very curious to look if um harvey milk's obituary was probably written in there maybe i mean it very well may have been yeah um and i'll i'll definitely look and see if it is there but i often find um scientists and nobel prize winners and that sort of thing when they pass away the new york times often covers um like basically a a summary of their lives and i find it fascinating because it's people you've never heard of before you don't know their name but they've contributed so significantly to things we use in our everyday life or things that are very important in medicine or science or maths or stats or the economy or you know whatever the case may be Hmm. um and this one okay this one wasn't actually from an obituary um, this was for from one of the Nobel Prize um, sort of backgrounds they were giving. They often give sort of little articles on past winners and that sort of thing. Mm. But I found this woman very interesting um, because she just she came from a very humble background. She fought for a very humble cause and she did some big things in science. But I didn't know her name. <laughs> yeah. So. The reason I pulled this up is because I wanted to double check on the dates and things. But her name is Rosalind Yellow. Yellow spelled Y-A-L-O-W. I think that's how you say it, Yellow. And she won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1977. And essentially what she did is she created, with alongside her husband, the radio immunoassay. And essentially what that did is um, for diabetics and that sort of thing, you were able to trace the metabolic pathways of the um, of the insulin based on how it broke down the um, sort of isotopes that you put with it. <laughs> so let me let me read it in um, verbatim so it's a little bit easier to understand. In lay terms. <laughs> in lay terms. They, they just explain it very well here. Um, so her own husband was diabetic, which was the reason they initially took an interest in insulin. 
And so to begin, they attached radioactive iodine to molecules of insulin and injected minute amounts of the radioactive tagged insulin into volunteers, including themselves. And over the course of several hours, they took frequent blood samples to determine how quickly the insulin was being metabolized and leaving the bloodstream. So essentially, when it's metabolized, it would no longer be in the bloodstream. It would mm. be in your cells. So they could measure how well the cells were taking up the insulin. And the insulin was actually being used by the body by measuring the amounts of iodine. And I mean, iodine is not poisonous. So mm. um, I, th I thought that was very interesting. But essentially, so this was done in the 1960s, which was years ago. Um she was also 22 when she started doing this, and her husband was 29. Very young, actually. But um, what I found was very interesting was they had a policy in the university that she was in that once a woman was five months pregnant, they had to leave the university. They had to go take care of their children. Um, like leave it they, permanent, permanent. Yes. <laughs> what, as a student or as, as a, a staff? As a, as staff a researcher, member. a staff member. So you just couldn't go back? Exactly. And she was like, um, no, uh, this is not, not the case. So mm. she completely defied their rules and carried on working. And she was a very firm believer that um, women in science could have both career and family. Mm. And she fought very hard for sort of equality. She said, you know, the only difference between a male scientist and a female scientist is that the female has to have the babies. Yes. Yeah. She was like, that's it. That is the only difference. That's all it should be, yeah. And she said, you know, and a male is also involved in the family, yes. you know, and he, as he should be. Yeah. And if, if that is equally balanced, then the female can continue having her career and become good at what she does and, you know, make a significant contribution, which she went on to do. I mean, she won a Nobel Prize. Mm. Um, and she also had her children and her family, and she apparently balanced it very well. Yeah. Um, but I, I liked how she sort of, she wasn't defiant or angry at anyone. She was simply normal, actually. She was very normal about normal. it. She normal just said, listen, I love what I do. You know, I... I, she was fascinated by biology and science and she came from a family that didn't even have high school diplomas mm. and she went on to get her PhD and she just believed that you know science was a part of life and life was a part of science and that it, those two shouldn't be mutually exclusive yeah I mean you gain nothing from that whole argument of oh well, a woman should stay at home and a man should uh, go out and work mm. because from a woman's point of view you could deny her kind of any agency in a career yeah but from a man's point of view well now you're saying you can't be a caregiver exactly and that's kind of to the detriment of pretty much a lot of fathers definitely when it comes to custody when mm. it comes to just perception on what parents are mm. i mean men are seen as a lot more absent either because that's just the way things are or it's because of perceived mm. kind of inadequacy so you gain nothing you gain nothing by one being preferred over the other for either of those things. Exactly. Yeah. And I, Even I, if it was a woman who had to go and work. Yes. If it was a man who had to stay home. Yeah. If that was the norm, it still wouldn't be good. I just, I, I think in particular this this case, or well, this uh, person and her life got to me was because 
again you say like she was so normal about it but yeah. she also there was no anger in it mm. there was which i mean i can i can i can get a bit riled up by these sorts of issues and i mean she was blatantly prejudiced against mm. and she was just like hey guys you know kids have got to be you know birthed by someone mm. <laughs> but doesn't exclude them from a career yeah. you know but and it doesn't exactly and it doesn't exclude men from raising mm-hmm. them as well yeah so yeah I, I thought that was very interesting and i thought she was a very interesting person but i could share that yeah all right so recommendation for the week um i just finished reading this book so i can definitely recommend it as a whole it's called The Thursday Murder Club, and it's by Richard Osman. It was honestly just a really good read overall. Um, briefly, it's about a group of retirees in a retirement home mm-hmm. in England who essentially, instead of having like a knitting club or like a poker club or something like that have a true crime club yeah and like they, virtually everyone on spotify <laughs> pretty much but they essentially meet together and um discuss cold cases or you know murder murders that have happened and it just so happens that someone in their vicinity gets murdered um and they they end up like getting together to attempt to solve this crime and I think one of my favorite things that this author did in this book was that he really like would lead the reader on. So you're like, oh, I know who did it. It was this character. And then he would like sort of like tease it for a bit and then he'd put you onto another character and then you were like, oh, yes, okay, no, it has to be this character. But that's kind of like how a case works. Yeah, and but I'd never actually read a book where it wasn't... It, it was teased and teased and teased yeah, and teased. It wasn't teased. spoon feeding you. It wasn't spoon feeding you anything. Yeah. And it wasn't saying definitively yes and definitively no. It was just like teasing out all these characters. And it it was I liked the idea of it flipping between you really liking a character and then you being like, shit, this this could be the murderer. Yeah. You know? And then going back to liking the character and then just being like, Ooh, okay, now I'm confused. I don't know if they could have done it or couldn't have. So just a good book has some really like sentimental deep moments and i really appreciated it also being written from like a a retired person's expected like perspective like a much older person because i don't think i've ever read a book that's by you know written from a eight seventy or 80 year old's perspective you know so i found that interesting people would find uh, the most kind of worthy to read yeah kind of just brush that off as just yeah. an old experience yeah so i i really enjoyed it i thought the the characters were well, well written the whole setting was very well done and interestingly it jumps between third person as well as like segments from one of the characters diaries which is very cool hmm. so yeah definitely recommend nice my tea is done yeah, mine's uh, about as cold as it could ever get. <laughs> Clearly hasn't been sitting close enough to the heater. No. All right. Shall we sign off? Yeah, same time next week. Same time <laughs> next week. See ya. Bye.